Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. today's podcast, we're going to have a very important conversation about human trafficking, which includes a frank discussion of sexual abuse and exploitation. This might be painful and triggering for some listeners. Please consider carefully before tuning in. If you feel in crisis or worry that someone you love might be in crisis, please call 988 for assistance. According to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Human trafficking involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. Every year, millions of men, women, and children are trafficked worldwide, including in the United States. It can happen in any community, and victims can be any age, race, gender, or nationality. According to the International Labor Organization, Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal enterprise of the 21st century, creating a $150 billion global industry that is second only to drugs in terms of organized crime. This is not a crime that only happens in other countries. It occurs across the United States, nationwide in our cities, suburbs, and rural towns. U.S. gangs have embraced human trafficking as a high-profit, low-risk industry with a renewable product they can sell over and over again. Some facts about human trafficking. 83% of human trafficking victims rescued in the United States are American citizens. A third of them are children. While human trafficking refers to forced labor as well as commercial sex acts, a full 80% involves sexual slavery. The average age of trafficking victims is 12. Child trafficking victims live an average of only seven years after being sexually enslaved. California is one of the nation's top hubs for human trafficking, with their airports, seaports, international borders, and expansive freeway systems. The freeways between San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, and Las Vegas are major transportation corridors for the sex slavery trade. Our most vulnerable children, those in poor communities, in foster or group homes, victims of abuse or neglect, are most at risk of being trafficked into sexual slavery. 
Victims are recruited and made to feel dependent upon their captors, often moved to a new city and left with no resources and no hope for escape. Victims are sometimes branded with tattoos across their foreheads or genitals, marking them as the property of the gang that enslaves them. In today's podcast, and in a subsequent podcast in two weeks, we're going to speak with several members of the Long Beach Human Trafficking Task Force. We have Teresa Gomez, Human Dignity Program Manager with the Long Beach Health and Human Services Department. We also have Mariah Sayway, Survivor, Mentor, and Advocate, and Mary White, CEO, both from Gems Uncovered, a nonprofit offering street outreach and aftercare services to victims of human trafficking. Last but not least, we are joined by Francesca Douglas Franco, founder and executive director of Human Save, a nonprofit that offers prevention, life skills training, and mental health treatment to trafficking survivors. Welcome to all of you. I am very excited to have you here. I know this is going to be an eye-opening topic of conversation for our listeners. Um, Please, if you would, just take a brief moment and introduce both yourself and your organizations. And Teresa, I'll start first with you. Yes, uh, good afternoon. Teresa Gomez, I'm the Human Dignity Program Coordinator and manager for the city of Long Beach. I'm with the Department of Health and Human Services. And I've worked for the city for 23 years in gang prevention intervention and now human trafficking diversion and responding to victims of hate crimes. Excellent, welcome. And Francesca? Hi everybody, I'm Francesca Douglas Franco. I'm the founder and executive director of Human Save. Um, We are a mental health organization that provides therapy to human trafficking survivors. And we also do a lot of work in the community and within the schools um, to provide prevention workshops. Excellent. Thank you. And how about you, Mary? Hello, everyone. My name is Mary White. I'm the CEO and founder of Gems Uncovered. We are a nonprofit organization helping victims of human trafficking 18 and over. We started this uh, organization back in 2011, and we're continuing to fight the good fight. Excellent. And I am particularly excited to introduce Mariah as well. So Mariah, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thank you. Uh, My name is Mariah Sayway. Um, I am the survivor mentor and advocate for Gems Uncovered. I am a sex trafficking survivor and have been working in this field since 2016. I'm very excited to be on with you guys. So thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you, everybody. Um, So, Teresa, I'm going to throw the first question at you, and then we can open it up as we move through. But I'm really confident that for most of our listeners, the idea that American youth are being trafficked is new information. Um, Can you speak to this? Is human trafficking really a problem in the United States? It absolutely is. You know, human trafficking is a problem throughout the world. It's a worldwide problem, actually. But here in the United States, millions of children and women primarily are trafficked throughout our country. You know, a lot of people think that this isn't happening in our country. And if it's happening, it's happening to just immigrants. 
but it happens to so many people regardless of age, gender, nationality. So it is happening within our city, within our own, literally in our backyard. And it's something that people really need to be made aware of because there's so many myths out there about trafficking that really need to be um, talked about so that people really understand the true urgency of addressing this issue. You know, we know at the Guidance Center, we treat vulnerable uh, children and families. So we know that just about any of our clients could be at risk of being trafficked because of their vulnerabilities. And I know that I've treated victims over the years, whether we use that word or not. Um, Francesca, I'll start with you here. Could you sure. explain for the benefit of our listeners, what make what might make someone high risk for being trafficked? Well, um, as you probably know, the less resources that somebody has access to and the more trauma or adverse childhood experiences that they've, uh, that they've experienced um, makes them exponentially more vulnerable to trafficking. And while we do typically think of low-income or immigrant populations as being the most vulnerable, we do also know that you know, as of the Me Too movement, um, with Epstein, with Weinstein, with uh, the U.S. gymnastics team, that it's far far more interconnected than that and and far more widespread than just the demographics. I think uh, that more than anything else, childhood sexual abuse and um, issues in the area of attachment and connection to primary caregivers are probably what um, really makes somebody vulnerable to being trafficked and victimized in general. So... You know, Mary, maybe you could uh, weigh in on that as well. And what sort of specific vulnerabilities do traffickers prey? Foster care youth are a big one. You know, about 60 to 70 percent of the foster care youth are, have been identified as victims of human trafficking. You know, and it doesn't really um, matter if you come from a great home or a poor income type of environment. Anyone is vulnerable. It's the vulnerabilities that the traffickers use to gain access to that individual. I, it's making me wonder if I should back up. And because uh, we talked about Epstein, we talked about Weinstein, we've talked about, you know, some of these things that have been in the news quite a lot. You know, some of us know a little bit about, you know, trafficking. We think of a lot of um, foreigners, refugees, immigrants. I'm wondering if we should back up and just sort of define first what we mean by trafficking, if that might be helpful. Um, would someone like to weigh in on that? Just give sort of a general definition of what trafficking means? If you want to just break it down and just in layman terms of someone who's who's exploited um, for the use of money or um, they could be sexually exploited, you can be um labor exploited you there's so many different things that you can fall under the exploitation but what you want to focus on is it's not about what sums up trafficking it's about the situation that puts that person in to being trafficked what do you mean by that expand on that for us please just like the vulnerabilities we were just talking about um, those are high categories. A lot of people can be in a um, in a relationship where there's different forms of abuse, 
but trafficking is so much bigger than what we actually think um, about it in the U.S. within our territory here. So when you look at youth nowadays and you have to really understand what can make this person stand out from a person who's going through an abusive situation versus a person who's going through a trafficking situation. Teresa, anything to add in that? The formal definition of human trafficking involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. You know, traffickers might use different methods to lure their victims into trafficking situations such as violence, manipulation, uh, promise of well-paying jobs, or even romantic relationships. You know, and then the language barriers also, they fear their traffickers. You know, people who are undocumented are forced into um, labor trafficking and the sex trafficking, seeking, you know, the help and trying to get out of the debts that they have, you know, for immigrants who are coming to this country and owe debts. So there's a lot that goes into it. You know, there's a, also confusion of trafficking and smuggling. So trafficking is the use primarily of force, fraud, or coercion for this some type of labor or commercial sex act. And I'd just like to add to that. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to encourage you because I could tell you wanted to say something. So please. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say that um, force, fraud, or coercion, except in the case of minors, in which case it, that none of that needs to be present. Um, and, and we work a lot with minors. So what I did want to add was um, sometimes it looks really different, especially for youth. Um, there's been a lot of cases where, of course, there's online sexual exploitation, right? There's um, child sexual abuse material that gets sold on the internet. Um, another common uh, scenario that's really difficult to identify as trafficking is in romantic relationships because the victim does not identify the perpetrator as a trafficker or even as a perpetrator. That's their boyfriend or their girlfriend. Um, and in these cases, it's it's very gray area and, and much more difficult to swoop in and, you know, rescue like like you see on TV so I think this has led us pretty nicely into the next question, which is, what is the process of recruitment? Um, how exactly um, is someone trafficked? It, from what I've read, it in many ways seems to replicate like a grooming, but I'd, I'd really like to hear, Mariah, do you want to start there? I know that you're a survivor yourself and you work um, quite closely as a mentor with other victims. So do you wanna talk about what you understand as to the process of recruitment? Yeah, uh, recruitment, you have to understand with sex traffic or trafficking in general is about the supply and demand the traffickers will seek. But how I was um, trafficked was, my grooming was a Romeo. He was a Romeo pimp and he came in to swoop me up out of a horrible situation that I was in. Um, and like Francesca said, you don't know how to identify the trafficker because in my eyes, that was my boyfriend, you know, not until um, I was on the run and then got sold across state lines did I realize what kind of what was going on. And when those things happen to you and you're 
we're already in a vulnerable situation, you kind of just tell yourself, well, I did this to myself. So who am I going to reach out to? And no idea that organizations out there were willing to um, help out when someone's in that situation, because we don't understand what trafficking is as, as um, a child or as a, a um, an adolescent. So those things, um, they prey on the vulnerability of, of people. So it just depends on how you're going to get sucked into that. Mine was a Romeo. He, you know, told me everything that I needed to hear every, made me feel the way I wanted to finally feel. And then next thing you know, you're being sold across state lines. So there's different ways that you can, um, get into it. And, um, Mary, she's very knowledgeable in this field when it comes to this, because, um, she was the one that helped recognize the signs of what I was going through and had continued to reach out to me after I made it back home. Mary, um, let's turn to you then as a, as an expert in this, could you have anything to add about the process of recruitment or maybe some explanation around what uh, a Romeo pimp is? I certainly read a lot about that as I was researching for today. Um, But Mary, I'd love to hear from the experts here. You know, um, traffickers slash pimps, they'll foster an emotional attachment, you know, by building this relationship, you know, with the individual to understand what their desires are and what their vulnerabilities are. Then they play off of that. There's a huge demand, uh, and that's why they call it supply and demand, for these victims to go out there and provide the services that people are looking for. And with Mariah, you know, and I'm just going to share, Mariah has come from my church. And so I've known her since she was 17 years old. And to hear what has happened in working with her mom to get her back home safely, that was a miracle in itself. And then to bring her back into the fold, if you will, to help her overcome what she's been through to the point where now she is extending her hand to help other girls and women reach that same, same feeling of freedom. Which is such a power, powerful, powerful thing, Mariah, um, to pay it forward in that way. And I'm sure you have such a strong voice in the work that you do because, uh, your your people know that you understand. Um, Francesca, do you have anything you want to add to those questions about how vulnerabilities are preyed upon or what the process of recruitment is? Sure. Um, in terms of child sex trafficking, especially what people should know and understand is that predators go where the kids are. It's not a matter of where is it unsafe. It's where do your children go and what do they do? Um, so right now, of course, the internet, right? We've just been through a pandemic where everybody is remote learning and, you know, you're putting tablets in the hands of five, six-year-olds. Um, we're uh, seeing a lot of video games like Roblox, which are open world or the metaverse in, in terms of virtual reality. And these, it's really important to also not vilify the internet in the sense that it was not meant to keep our children safe. It was meant to get us from uh, our question to the answer as quickly as possible. So it really falls on parents, guardians, uh, mentors to know uh, who has access to our kids. 
Um, it's the same as opening your front door and letting them right in their face, right? Because they're fostering that same relationship, the one that Mary and Mariah were, were talking about. Um, you know, kids want to feel special. They want to feel seen. And heard. I mean, that's human, right? That's not even kids. That's everyone wants to feel special and seen and heard. And so on the flip side of that, uh, that is the most powerful tool to fight. Uh, exploitation, victimization, trafficking in general is like being able to see and accept and love the kids around us, especially the kids around us. Um, that is their strongest armor against trafficking because predators have nothing on, you know, on parents who are doting on uh, aunts and cousins and, and uncles and, and grandparents who ask you what your favorite color is or who your best friends are, or where you want to go or what your app does and plays the game with you. You know, I have a nine-year-old and she's still at the age where she loves when I play Minecraft with her. You know, those kinds of things are really um, preventative, you know, in, in the true sense where we don't have to necessarily, well, no, let me back up. We still have to teach them about internet safety, but we can know that um, their most basic needs are being met. Um, so I hope that answers that question, but uh, recruitment, um, recruitment happens wherever there's a need not being met. And, and I just want to piggyback off that. Um, when you have, when you're around kids and you have kids, you have to understand we we're always taught stranger danger. I don't teach my kids stranger danger for this reason, because things happen to me within family, things happen to me within, um, close friends. Um, so it's not about teaching your kids stranger danger, but about teaching them strange behavior. Right. You know, because the uncle can be a recruiter, you know, the aunt's best friend, the cousin's friend, um, all of these things could fall into someone. It, it, recruiter doesn't, they don't just write recruiter on their face. You know, a lot of these people at night turn off their recruitment hat or their, or their traffic or pimp hat and go to a family, you know, and you, it's about teaching your kids and the next ginger, uh, generation about strange behavior, because that's what we'll talk about. You know, you can't ever just trust everybody who's around your kid all the time, but you can be able to distill that trust in your kid to talk to you about strange behavior. I think that's so important. And I've never thought about it that way that it's, um, but you're right. Like it, in your case, for example, uh, you believed he was your boyfriend mm -hmm. or in the case of um, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, his recruiter was um, that woman who was beautiful and glamorous and you wouldn't think of her as a stranger. If she was recruiting you, you would think of as an entree into this gl glamorous, wonderful, luxurious world. So, so stranger danger, you're right, misses the point when it comes to trafficking, doesn't it? And I love that message because I never thought about it that way. Um, and if could, you think... Oh, no, sorry. please go. And I was just going to say, if you think of child sexual abuse cases, it's almost always a close family friend, right? Or, or a family member, sometimes parents. And so on the flip side of that, we are also the most, I mean, how we treat our kids or how we treat the kids around us becomes their template for what is safe. And if we can be a safe person for them, then when their alarm bells go off, their alarm bells will be much more sensitive, right? So 
because they'll know that difference between um, good and bad behavior towards them. So could you, uh, Mariah, let me throw this one at you first. Um, could you describe for us the daily experiences of someone who is being trafficked? Oh, yeah. Um, you. It's hard to put it in just a regular terms, but someone who's being trafficked, you feel manipulated. You feel lonely. Um, you feel... Like um, your worth is being devalued um, with how with the things that you're being forced to do. Um, uh, I was even though I was only a hundred and like twenty six pounds and five three. Once I was sold across state lines, I was seen as as um, they called me the birthday girl, birthday present or money bag, and um, I was put on, like, on a strict diet and a strict w- workout routine. Um, so you go through these phases of, of not understanding yourself. You feel, um, you can feel lost. You can feel empty. Um, you can feel ashamed. You don't know how to ask for help. Um, and if you wanted to ask family for help, you just didn't want to do it because you could feel ashamed. No one understands what you're going through. People just say, well, why don't you leave? And it's like, my phone was taken. Um, my birth certificate was taken, my ID was taken, my social security card was taken, anything that I had on me that I just went to go look at an apartment with was taken. Um, So there's many emotions that you can go through, but the physical work on what's put onto your body is one that is more excruciating than what you actually feel Um, mentally because at one point you kind of just turn off your emotions um, and you become emotionless because you just are in this pattern your brain is is creating this chemical release to try to protect you from any more harm that keeps coming against you um you know you you name it you you pretty much have felt it but have tried to push through it no i first of all you're I just respect you so much uh, for your courage um, and and so appreciative that you're sharing this and educating this um, from a personal perspective, because that does, we feel it differently, um, don't we, when it, when it comes uh, direct to us like that. One of the most excruciating things I read was how a number of gangs, for example, have moved from... Um, selling drugs or guns to human trafficking because you sell a gun once and it's gone. You sell drugs once and it's gone. You can sell a human over and over and over again. And that devastated me. Um, But I, I felt like it was really telling because it really was that the human is the product and how devaluing that has to be as a human experiencing that. Yeah, it, it does break it down um, to make you feel worthless because even at that, when you say when you're sold once and you, but you, then the human comes back to be sold again, you get moved around. You don't, so then you're, now you're confused. And the one time I did reach out for help, it was someone who was working with the trafficker. So INN got in trouble later on that night. 
And so you don't know who to trust. You're you're being moved around and watched by diff- so many different people. I mean, the I was told on by um, security at the club, he was being paid out of pocket to keep an eye on the girls there. And you don't know that until something does happen and you ask for help and it's not what you received or what you actually help. So then it kind of just makes you feel helpless. Right. There's a certainly lesson there that it's not safe to ask for help. Um, Francesca, does this resonate with the work you have done within your organization and the, the clients you have served? Um, yes. And I mean, yes, of course. And, and also, um, and I don't know, Mariah, if you experienced uh, this, but I've heard from some of our clients and, and some of the kids that we've spoken with um, that they might be sold throughout the night and then show up at school the next day and nobody really knows um, what's going on with them, right? They tend to be, especially youth, the ones who have a big mouth or the kids that nobody wants to work with because they're vicious, but that viciousness comes from being able to protect them, right? Uh, and and so one of the most disheartening things I've heard uh, from a survivor was her um, talking about how she was expected to be normal the next day in front of the class and she's so tired and just wanted to go to sleep and, and then would get in trouble for that. So I think that there's a wide, I mean, of course, people experience many, many different things. Um, but a lot of times what it really looks like is very similar to domestic violence, uh, to which you would expect um, from domestic violence victims and, of course, an extra um, child sexual abuse, domestic violence and everything combined and the trauma that you can you know imagine. Um, beyond that, also, a lot of survivors of trauma in general tend to have like somatic, chronic somatic illnesses, so they're in pain a lot. And how that shows up throughout the day and migraines or stomach aches and, you know, you're not like the most chipper person, uh, especially adding to that, that you haven't slept all night. You know, it just as service providers or as somebody who's working with survivors, you really have to be humble enough to understand that, you know, somebody in front of you that you're helping is in a bad mood it makes perfect sense. Cause I know for me, if I'm missing sleep for two, three days, I'm not the same human being. So I can't imagine for like, you know, kids who have been abused since they were little, they literally haven't slept or had a great night of sleep without nightmares, without, you know, the PTSD symptoms for decades. And they're coming to you as a 20 something year old and then compound the trauma, you know, throughout the teen years and then the early twenties. And you've got all kinds of stuff that you're dealing with and you're supposed to be nice to this person who you once like what Mariah mentioned, don't really trust. Um, you know, the day to day might look different, but that core thing, you know, there's so much pain there and we just have to have that compassion to be able to, uh, humbly help somebody with dignity. Right. Absolutely. You know, Mary, I'd like to throw this next question for you, if I may. And I, I feel like you guys keep giving me great lead in. So, you know, if there there's a child who's being trafficked, for example, and then they're at school the next day, or it could be your neighbor, or, you know, I, I think this is uh, something the general public 
would would like to help. So how what are the signs? What should community members look for? How would they know if someone was perhaps a trafficking victim? And and Mary, I'll start with you. Let's just say, for instance, there's a, a young girl on your on your in your neighborhood and she's dressed appropriately for all these years. And all of a sudden she's now dressed in short skirts, crop tops. Now she's wearing a lot of makeup. Uh, she has tattoos. Um, her whole behavior has changed to very hard where she wasn't that way before. Um, maybe even physical bruises are on her body. Um, just the attitude has changed completely. It's uh, reading between the lines as to there's, you know what, there's something going on here that's just not right. And you can either talk to them directly or you can talk to the parents saying, you know, is there everything okay? Is everything okay? Is there anything I can do to help? You know, the one thing to, to add um, is that I don't even know if anybody's mentioned is that the, the tattoos, you know, a lot of these victims are branded with tattoos, whether it's the name of their trafficker, of their pimp on their face, on their hands, on their chest. You know, there's different tattoos that indicate um, trafficking. It could be a barcode, could be dollar signs, things like that. But it, with that, that goes hand in hand with other indicators. You know, it, does the person have the freedom to move about on their own? Do they, does it look like they're being controlled? You know, um, do they show signs of being very timid, fearful, and submissive? Things like that. So it's a lot of factors or indicators to look at. Um, you know, like Francesca said, you know, children, how are they when they come to school? Are they fearful? Are they disoriented, showing signs of mental or physical abuse? Those could be signs, but then that could be signs of other things as well. But, you know, what are the living conditions? A lot of the victims are not fed unless they bring in the food. In, I'm sorry, the money in exchange for to be fed for food. And if they get something, it's something very minimal, like a Happy Meal or whatever. So all of those things are things to really look out, look for. Um, and I always say, you know, what people say, you know, well, if I see that, what do I do? You know, it's like, and I guess that'll probably lead into another question too, but there's things you can do, you know, so. Uh, of course, that will lead into the very next question. You're very good. You guys just light me up just perfectly. Um, but, you know, sticking with a little bit longer with the signs, you know, I've, we've probably all read or heard stories here and there about a taxi driver who figured it out or suspected that uh, his or her passengers were being trafficked or a long distance truck driver figured something out, saw something not right at a rest stop or a hotel uh, front desk clerk figured something out. For for those people who are kind of public facing, are there certain things that should look like a red flag to them? Francesca, I see you nodding, so <laughs> I'll go to you. <laughs> I will say in a school setting, um, just to kind of back up a little bit, you know, if you notice uh, kids who shouldn't be able to afford something or who couldn't afford something like a week ago, and now all of a sudden they have $300 shoes or purses or, you know, clothes that just don't match what you know about their uh, financial status, um, 
that's a huge red flag as well because that's a that's going back to recruitment you know enticing kids to to make some quick money especially on these online platforms like OnlyFans or uh, things that just are a lot quicker and they don't seem dangerous. Are there red flags you would advise just people in our community to look for? I think that a lot of those red flags, you know, we're talking about specifically human trap, like signs of human trafficking. But if you really just go down into the, the human, the humanity of it, when you see something that just doesn't look right, it, you know, you're not really thinking that you're looking for, a sign of a specific crime, but does this person look uncomfortable? Do they look sad or are they, do they have that hopeless look on their face or do they look lost? I think just caring that this other human being kind of looks like they're in distress. I feel like that goes down into like back into our primal kind of um, gut instinct that there's something wrong, even if we can't put our finger on it. And like Mary said, you know, just being compassionate and asking, is everything okay? You know, you never know what kind of floodgates that will open. And you can tell straight up from that answer whether this needs to be looked into further, whether it might not be a safe place for this person to talk about right now, but maybe they'll try to connect with you again later. Um, But yeah, more than, you know, a list of signs, because if you look for the list of signs, the list goes on and on and on and on. But if you're looking more for whether somebody seems like they need help, I think it, it'll be a lot easier um, to to be able to identify when somebody is a victim of something, right? And you just want to help. Is it that sort of that, you know, what do we do if we suspect someone's being recruited or trafficked? Is It sounds like the primary thing is ask, ask if they're okay. Not ask necessarily, are you being trafficked? Because those words might not resonate, but are you okay? Can I help in some way? And then- Let's say I would imagine most would be somewhat dismissive of your question, but your spidey sense is still uncomfortable. Um, what would you recommend those people do? Trisha, you know, the the question asking the individual that you are suspecting something, saying, are you safe? Even just the question, are you safe? That is going to open up the a wide possibility of them saying, no, I need help or something. Immediately call law enforcement to say there's you're seeing something you asked if it they're safe and they're saying no and that's what i would do please note that this is such a unique and important topic that we're spreading this conversation across two episodes please stay tuned for episode 14 where we continue this conversation It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by The Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club. 
to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.